This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we sit down to discuss an article from the second volume of the ongoing journal Chuang. The article we read was A State Adequate to the Task, Conversations with Lao Xie. living we're living it's if you're listening live it's it's 2020 now it's time to put away childish things focus on what really matters actually existing socialism so in order to kind of orient ourselves new decade new me um we're going to look at the present moment and what's happening in actually existing socialism by reading uh from the the schwang journal uh, this is issue two, and we're reading an interview with uh, with an activist that's uh, working in China, uh, and their name is, let's see if I get this right, uh, Lao Tzu. Uh, did I get that? I forgot. I sent, I sent the pronunciation YouTube video to the, uh, to the group chat. Hold yes, on, you, let me listen. Let me yes, listen you did. One more time. Let's, yeah, let's get this shit right. It's like, see ya. Yeah, Lao Sia. And yeah, it's got that got that nice little melody going down. I remember the I remember the uh intonation. I didn't remember the word, so Lao Tzu. Okay, great. Um and I can't, by the way, I can't believe you said we were gonna we were gonna orient ourselves, Lexi. Mm-hmm. Orient. Uh, really? Did I did I say that? That's My very God. problematic. I'm sorry. You're we're going to we're going to Asia ourselves. Okay. <laughs> That's a super good joke. We're off to a good start this decade. Mm. This is actually one of the few articles that I have, like, that we've read that I have in print. Because, um, hey, if you haven't subscribed to Schwang yet, um, I don't know why, but they have a criminally low number of Patreon subscribers considering the kind of work they're doing. So patreon.com slash, I think it's just C-H-U-A-N-G. Um, I don't see why not. doesn't take too much. Um, it probably makes a big difference for some really cutting edge uh, communist research. And amazingly, they're not paying us to do this. So <laughs> yeah, no, we're just big, big stands. It's the communization project that I feel like most Marxists except for the real, like, geopologists can get down with. Like, uh, J- Jake, if, uh, if you can hear me, uh, you know, why did, uh, what made you want uh, us to do this? Oh, there's Jake. Uh, yeah, so I missed a bunch of that, but uh, let me see. So what made us want to do this? Let me want to, yeah, so, I don't know. I mean, I think the... They seem to be one of the only groups kind of doing like, you know, like workers inquiries, I guess is what you would cut might call it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or in, in, like investigations into, you know, the actual like kind of what China, not only like what China is, but kind of the class, the state of class struggle in China. I think that's the most interesting stuff. More so than the theory, honestly, to come out of uh, to come out of Shuang. 
they're kind of they came out of communizers, didn't they? Something like that. I don't know. I don't know who's in Schwang, but if you hang around like ultra left and you know post ultra whatever scenes, you know you see who promotes who, and it. I I would imagine they have common members with end notes with you know, or something like that. Actually, what's sort of most interesting in a way is that there is a difference of opinion between ultimately an analysis between the interviewee and and the and Schwang. And that get kind of gets borne out like later in the article. And it's an interesting pushback because it's uh I don't know. It's coming it's coming from a place of like it's it's a pretty scathing actually point of view from like a you know if you're like a 20th century sort of apologist or you know nostalgic like even though what's being presented might not be a, a communizer point of view exactly um still pretty withering <laughs> about the existing left um which kind of makes sense being in china um well yeah they say something about how we're just playing around with the corpse of the 20th century or so- something like that what what was it um, the left-wing praxis of the 20th century has exhausted itself. All these people trying to walk in their footsteps, secretly doing reading groups. They're like, you know that medical phenomenon where you lose an arm, but you still feel like the arm is there? And then goes on to say, the left believed themselves to be professional political agents, among whom some believed themselves to be re- revolutionaries, while the workers were a separate group different from ourselves, whom we had to lead. The workers were to be led and liberated by us. It was a disaster. <laughs> and that's that's uh, something the interviewee says. Yeah, um, it's interesting that, uh, let's see, let's see if I can get it right. Let's say Lao. Okay, so yeah, Lao Tzu also is like, basically does the post-left thing of, you know, being like, leftists? We're not leftists. If we were leftists, we couldn't work together. We'd be too busy arguing about, like, program and stuff. Well, like, he's back and forth on it, and then I think that's that <laughs> sort of that sort of gives you a little bit about what the tip, what the post-leftist position is. Like, it's still... Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's kind of containment within left politics still, where it's defining itself in relationship to left politics still, because... Mm. Um, <clears throat> And he says, we're not typical leftists. Mm, mm, okay. You know? no, and then later, fair. later, if we were leftists, we would have fallen apart long ago. Um, so I think it's yeah. kind of characteristic about, about post-leftism uh, in that it, it doesn't actually um, really solidify that disidentification with the left so much as saying like we're going to build on this Mm. thing in our own way i'd say that this this isn't typical of post-leftism i'd say that post-leftism imagines itself to have broken with the left in a stronger way than this than uh lao and i much prefer lao approach it's much more honest well he says today's leftists are merely eating the corpses of the 20th century I mean, that's, that's pretty scathing, but yeah, at the same time, I guess what I mean by it being, you know, contained by 
the left is that there's still kind of, you know, it, it takes this ultra left slash post left position of, you know, we're not doing X, Y, Z that the left does. We're focused on labor activity. And so it's still this this activist political position. Of, yeah we're going to go out to the struggle, you know, the struggle that's over there somewhere mm -hmm. that we're going to intervene upon, you know, rather than this idea that, you know, capitalism abridges my life. How can I act on my social interests? It, it ends up being about like, let's, let's organize the mm. workers who aren't us, you know? And, and I, but th there's, it's interesting because um, she says stuff about, I don't know if it's about like going out to the workers so much as he seems to believe that like there are certain sections of the working class that have more leverage and can, you know, basically trigger mass strikes and negotiate more by virtue of their position within the system. So we have to go to those workers specifically for that like strategic reason. You know, I don't know if that's the, you know, you see what I'm saying? Like it's, I think that stems more from just his theory about like the way that like class struggle is conducted. Right. It, com it comes from like an orthodox position on like the essential proletariat having their hands on the means of production more so than it does from, you know, the 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 notion of being essentially separated and needing to lead uh, the, the Schwang interviewer essentially asks him if, you know, he's kind of if um, asks him if he's, you know, following like Luxembourg's critique of Lenin. And you know the sort of, the sort of gesturing in that in that direction. I guess I'd say it's more of an ultra left position, like an aut autonomous position or something more so than a than a yeah than something truly beyond the ultra super beyond the left or whatever. What's interesting to me though, one of, one of the things that I think is really salient in the answers to these questions is that he talks about not just the left opposition, you know, the organized left being near non-existent. Uh, in China, but labor circles themselves, even though we hear mm. more, we hear more about, you know, labor activity in China than in the United States, but it being small in China relative to India, relative to Indonesia, relative to Vietnam, um, you know, that, that, that being in this special position of being a, a quote unquote socialist state, um, doesn't actually provide with like a more, like an innately, like more class struggle or something within it but mm. he sees this as not actually contradictory to china's importance to uh global what he calls global class struggle i guess you could say to the real movement because he says uh its various social forces and classes are still taking shape and the boundaries between them the rules for distributing interests and their understandings of one another are all still in flux um and then that there are multiple levels of internal tensions across Chinese society. Um, China has a special, perhaps unique value for the class struggle. And so he, he's really not saying like, oh, we're the most hyper militant with workers or anything mm. like that. He, he's, he's more saying, you know, you look at Chinese society in total and you see these contradictions that like probably can't be kept a lid on forever. Mm. Um, and that, that, and, but he's very dismissive of the idea that that state of affairs has very much to do with, um, the center to far 
left really in that he's you know you bring up these social democrats and he actually even makes fun of them like you guys aren't even you know fuck reformism or whatever but you guys aren't even proper reformists you can't implement any reforms you know yeah he says about this one guy um his followers think they're important but they have very little influence anywhere he's disparaging these social democrats from the middle class urban strata as not proper reformists because he says uh to be a reformist you need to be have a social movement to support your position many of these social democrats advocate controls on housing prices <laughs> and rent but they don't have any power to implement such proposals yeah i i like um i mean we could go through this more systematically but one of the things that he points out is that people that want to topple the system and replace it with like a pluralist kind of social democracy or, or outright, you know, just straight up capitalist, like, you know, lib like maybe, a, maybe liberal capitalist or, you know, like some kind of other illiberal capitalist re regime, whatever, like they tend to be middle class and resentful of not being able to get into the, <laughs> the sort of uh, incestuous circles of the party and the, the way that the party is linked into the big capitalists, the way that like, state-owned enterprises like works with the uh, bureaucracy and like i don't know the, basically the big capitalists are pretty invested in the chinese communist party he, he actually says that the um the big bourgeoisie in china is much more invested in uh, supporting CCP rule, uh, they they he says something like they wish they had more freedom, for example, for lawyers, right? Right, um, right. And that they defend the existing system, but call for some degree of adjustment. That's but he says all of China's successful capitalists are to some extent inside the establishment, either uh, kinship or relationships, and it's just a matter of degree that corresponds to their amount of wealth. So even those that right. want to destroy the system. Um, because it seems to prevent them from profiting more, um, mm. they still have a uh, intermeshingness with China's uh, Communist Party. Um, they just happen to support political reforms where the CCP would have to step down. And so this is the small and mid-scale capitalists, he calls mm. them. Well, yeah, because he has this theory about what I like to call the Chinese Illuminati, Right. Like he has this theory that like behind like the central committee and all that stuff, there's like basically like some kind of like weird like f like family crime syndicate or some shit like old timers who they maybe never even held official positions in some cases. And that's like the that's like and basically through like weird like, you know, fam like I guess the intermarrying of families and stuff like that, like all their interests are basically sewed up. And then like the people who are actually like the head of the party are at like a lower tier in the actual like you know management of society right and and then between but between and so at the top levels yeah anybody who like i guess he uses jack ma as an example like anybody who gets to that level has to have some kind of backing from somebody in like the inner circle right uh, right and and but he i think what saves it from being a conspiracy theory is that he's also sort of just saying well all this is super incestuous right like you can't divide these into like the the perfect like these are the rulers these are the like 
these are their patsies because, you know, you'll have bureaucrats who have family connections to different people and stuff like that. And then, you know, wait, what is that? You know, uh, like, that's Hunter Biden. You know what I mean? Like, he, well, I don't think he really is saying that it's just a small group of families that, you know, I, I didn't read hmm. this as maybe maybe I skim this but i didn't read this as you know the the chinese rothschilds argument well i like grant while i agree with your read of the text uh that what you just kind of quoted about it is where i think jake has uh you know a point in that like the idea of these milieu being incestuous like by itself is what this has in common with like the illuminati conspiracy theories where you're circling this person and that person on the board and connecting them and being like, see, it's all connected, you know, like they all got that reptilian blood. And that's not what the, uh, <laughs> it's not what's being said here. But like, I, Jake, I could see why you would p- point this out. And uh, the interviewer really presses, really presses him on this. And is like, uh, because I think his, the way that he presents like the breakdown of Chinese society is a little different between the second and third interview. Um yeah, there's a great part, um, though, where they ask – they're asking him about these reformist, like reformists versus capitalists that want to destroy the system. Mm. Um, and mm. the interviewers go, well, what, what about the underground pro-democracy parties? You know, What about the social democrats? And he says, underground pro-democracy parties are smaller than ants with no influence to speak of. And the interviewers go, well, you say none of the underground parties are important. And they ask sort of incredulously, like, not the democracy parties, not the left leaning ones, like the constitutionalist party. And he says, those parties are just independent projects by small groups of people without any social basis. And they don't represent any particular class interest. They're marginal. They go, what about the proletariat then? And then he replies, the proletariat mm-hmm. has no organizations of its own. Yeah. Th- this is what ultimately makes this, I guess, if thinking about it harder, because Grant, you, you brought to my attention some of the ambivalence that, yeah, this is an ultra leftist position in China. And like, it's really what, what, what I think is really unique about it is it doesn't it's not a Maoist cultural revolution, ultra leftist position. Like, yeah, he sort of, and he doesn't even spend that much time like ideologically trashing like Maoists in the way you would probably see in like a online thread about mm-hmm, it, where it's just like, mm-hmm. oh, like they're so contradictory or anything like that. He's just like, yeah, these Maoists, like they're ultimately conservative restorationists, and that's about <laughs> it. Excuse me. Okay, so Lao Tzu. Um says, in most countries, the historical threat of private property was never broken, nor the threat of resistance against the bourgeoisie. So there's been a living logic that is inspired by a history of rebellion. In China, that thread was broken. You have to be aware of this if you want to understand the Chinese left. For instance, Chinese people are still in the process of relearning what class means. After the strange things that term came to be associated with during the Mao era, it might take another 20 years for people to relearn what it really means through their own experiences of class struggle in the market economy. Um, The most basic characteristic of today's Maoists is defense of the existent. And then Chuang says, how could that be? Aren't many of them calling for something like a return to how things were during the Mao era. Uh, And then Lao Tzu says, 
Yes, but I mean their spiritual condition is one of inertia rather than of subversion. It's essentially conservative. In Chinese political discourse, this is associated with the term constructive. Their emergence derived from the destruction of what existed before, and they aim to restore what's been destroyed. That's why I said they're conservative. This contrasts with us, who emerge from present conditions, aiming to destroy them and create something new. This attitude towards mass rebellion, and even towards the masses themselves, especially towards workers, is one of contempt and fear. This derives from the experience and habits of the CCP bureaucrats. It is the attitude of Xiaoximan, which I think was a sort of like, it was a rough analog to petty bourgeois. I'm not doing the concept justice. Um, in a tranquil society towards the destructiveness, towards the destructiveness associated with workers' actions. Uh, and then he goes on to describe the, how the new Maoist left took shape, which apparently there's a landmark cultural event. Uh, there's a production of a play called Che Guerrera, uh, che Guerrera in uh, Beijing starting in 2000, and that apparently was a big moment. Um, and, the, and also the, the political kind of vacuum opened by the death of Dong in 1997 and um, kind of deepened restructuring of socialist, I'm sorry, of state-owned state enterprises. Um, and, uh, yeah, his, his novel points about Xi, things that I've never actually really heard before, uh, gave me an appreciation for why Xi is an important figure and why it's not, it's not so simple to... <sighs> Xi kind of breaks the old Mao versus Dong dialectic, if you will. Mao essentially, you know, does the initial revolutionary attempt after a, uh, you know, after a nationalist um, kind of revolution um, and fighting off Japan, and um, and then you know fighting off the fighting off the nationalists. Actually, he also has it. Um, Lao Tzu also has an interesting um, theory of Chinese nationalism, but you know, Mao has this, you know this I don't know in the way that you know Stalin plays the the role of the stalwart who's trying to build socialism by will you have a, a similar kind of place for Mao in the politics of China and then um, Dong is much more is more straightforwardly a marketizer um, and then you get a weird perhaps uh, synthesis in Xi um, Xi does not want to liquidate the state-owned enterprises. He strengthens them. He makes them a vital part of the Chinese economy. Um, on the other hand, he doesn't go with a bunch of the you know social welfare reforms that a lot of the you know Maoist nostalgics were hoping for, particularly uh, housing allotments. And I understand like things around wage are not regulated in the way that, you know, the old Maoists would want. So it's a very strange kind of package, which makes, which makes some like illiberal kind of capitalist sense. Um, well, and he was, he was, um, <clears throat> you know, Hu Jintao went through mm -hmm. for this, um, more, um, collective, communist party leadership um 
more of a, a technocratic thing. Um, and they made certain promises. Mm, uh, I think mm-hmm. it's discussed in, in this interview that they made certain promises around, you know, trying to make a bargain with the workers enough to, um, you know, public housing, for example, was one of them that I think was brought up where the current regime uh, has been more on the wavelength of, uh, we don't need to do that. You know, like the, the, some of the, um, you know, sort of social democratic bribes of the, uh, you know, which I'm sure barely did anything, but, you know, throwing people a little bit of a bone that Hu Jintao was willing to do. seems like uh, Z is a bit more, um, how would you put it? Not giving a fuck. Well, I mean, like his main, his main theory was of, about uh, Xi is that, Basically, he's creating, as the title of the whole thing is, a state adequate to the task. He's basically trying to build, like, lasting, some kind of, like, stable, lasting institution um, that can, yeah, basically, like, manage capitalism going forward, right? And it talks about how a lot of, you know, I think he described it a as a, uh, basically everything up to Xi as, like, a protracted provisional government where they're basically just, like, I guess crossing the river by feeling the stones and just kind of improvising and you know sort of seeing where it goes. Now he it seems like he wants to he wants to create something stable and that will um you know have, basically cut like there's been so much like social chaos and he talks about like the way that classes kind of shifted so much and there was this distortion of class like in the sixties with like the Hoku system and all that shit like he, he, like it's it's a very like stable situation so it seems like he wants to basically create a sort of harmonious like neo fucking you know uh one of, neo dynasty kind of like situation you know what i'm saying yeah and it's interesting mm. like th- this has been overstated the extent to which the chinese political class is westernizing but um when you look at the professions and academic backgrounds of the people within the CCP. Uh, there has been some small shift away from, you know, engineers and science oriented people towards people in the, with a legal uh, background. I think that's interesting, you know, in terms of if you're looking at a nation building project, you know, um, will it Will it work or is it even that significant towards policy? I don't know the answer to either of those questions, but I remember reading an old statistic about a certain, you know, fifth or quarter of the the CCP leadership being from that like engineering STEM background. And I don't think that's the case any longer. There is also the issue of I, I, kind of a callback, but there's also been the issue of social insurance and um, the retirement age. In addition to the uh, the social housing demands um, that uh, you know promises that were made in the era of Hu Jintao, um, yeah, psych. Yep. <sighs> yeah, yeah, psych. And I mean, I don't, I don't know how Hu Jintao is like remembered, but he definitely doesn't command the same level of respect from you know in t- inside the party or you know. I don't know from Bloomberg or, or you know the other like <laughs> capitalist slugs in the in, in the first world like 
He'll be remembered. He'll be re he'll be remembered as uh, isn't that the bad guy from Rush Hour? Um. So anyway, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's it definitely there. Seems like it's almost it almost seems like a neoliberal turn in some way when it's framed like that. You know, like it's they're literally like basically looking to expand their extend their sphere of influence. And he also has this this theory that basically like China wants a war, like they want just like a small. You know, kind of almost the way like Americans wanted the Spanish-American War. You know, just go bloody somebody's nose and like reinvigorate like American like manliness or some shit like that. It seems like that's what he's saying with China. I think he speculates like, yeah, maybe they could get war with like Australia. They're looking for a war with like Australia or somebody. You know, something that'd be over real quick and that would allow them to bloody somebody's nose. And he starts talking about like the logic of the streets or whatever, because like, that's how it works in the streets. You know, you want to be the top dog, you gotta, you know. <laughs> Listen, yeah, man, yeah. when you get into prison, you walk up to the toughest looking guy in the whole fucking joint and you punch him in the face. Yeah, you just suck his dick like on the first day and you just <laughs> have the respect of it. Wait, I, I think I'm I actually I, wait. I, I think I like yours better. <laughs> probably. Honestly, that's probably more. It would probably be more effective. I mean, yeah, just from a game theory perspective, it's more rational. I was just going to say, you ever see that movie? I love you, Philip Morris. So it's basically like Ewan McGregor like or, and Jim Carrey are gay in prison. So it's it's sweet though, but there's a great part where he's like walking a new guy through the ropes and he's like See him over there. Anything you want from the outside, he's the guy. Candy, cigarettes, drugs, whatever. He's a guy. Just keep in mind it's gonna cost you a lot of money. Or you could suck his dick. Your choice. You're gonna catch a beating any day now. That's just the way it is. I lost three teeth, cracked a vertebrae. Anyway, all you got to do is fight back. Win or lose, just fight back. Or you can try to suck the guy's dick. Your choice. Letters, magazines, shit like that, it all goes through unmolested. But if grandma sends you cookies, or corn, or brownies, or whatever, you're going to have to pay for it if you want to get it. Five bucks per item, or you can suck my dick. Your choice. Anyway, that's the whole shebang. You'll do great. Don't worry. And if you need anything at all, you just ask me, all right? So, do I need to suck your dick? That'd be great. Um, let's see. Yeah, so we're no talking about yeah, yes. Uh, oh, so we're talking about like the kind of imperialism he hints at, and he also seems like he also intimates that he's a little nervous that like, what if like their imperial like ventures were successful and you got like some kind of some of that surplus value ended up going, you know, like China becomes a new core or something like. That's. He, he seems to think well. He, he he also from that he kind of says that a lot of. A lot of Chinese nationalism, they like the state actually kind of want doesn't really want a, too much nationalist fervor in the people, and the Chinese. He basically says the Chinese people don't have like a modern conception of like nationality that the face the state is like trying to foster. That's the that's one of the most fascinating like positions that he takes in this whole thing, because I mean it kind of reminds me of some of the Stalinist arguments where like you know if a people are kind of like behind in a way, like they don't properly develop nationalism when they quote should, you know, but, um, I mean, I don't know, like over, over Christmas, I saw, um, Shen Yen with my mom, which is like this anti-communist circus soleil. Um, Oh my God. The one with advertisements in every coffee shop that you yeah, walk yeah. into and all that shit. Um, wow. th like it's, it's presented as being, you know, a celebration of traditional Chinese culture that sadly can't be performed in mainland China because of the Chinese Communist Party. 
And uh, oh, is that what it is? Yeah, and the the libretto, the, the libretto has uh, you know shots at atheism and evolutionism, and you know how you know tradition is like you know you have to embrace tradition. And um, <laughs> what the fuck? Th- there's several musical numbers about like the repression of. Um, religious groups in China where you have like a ballet of like a Chinese government thugs beating like th- them down for praying. And it seems like uh, other than other than other than like uh, a gesture, uh, other than right in the beginning mentioning the multiple gods, you know, of, of, of creation in Chinese mythos, everything else about it seems custom tuned to resonate with like American evangelicals. Um, yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Jesus, it's, Jesus Christ, yeah. Uh, Cirque du, this this production of Cirque du Soleil is brought to you by the Victimos of Communism Foundation. More or less. Um, and the, the the two MCs of the show, like the hosts, like one of them said that the Chinese Communist Party has sent protesters to protest this very performance, and I feel like that. <laughs> I feel like that's just in the text because it was. It's like Christmas in the Northeast. I, like we, I went on Christmas because I'm Jewish. You know what else can I do? And um, and, and like, uh, yeah. Norm, no, normally I just eat Chinese food, but this time, you know, me and my family eat went. Some Chinese we went, people. <laughs> we we went all in on a celebration of Chinese national culture, um, and yeah, um, there were. I thought it was a phenomenal Jewish Christmas, um, but like we. <laughs> There was no one sent from the Chinese Communist Party to protest uh, Shenyan on Christmas that I could see. You know, I, I didn't like. I didn't. I didn't see any fucking protesters. Like Red Guards, Austin. <laughs> Red Guards. Red Guards, New they're Haven. Yeah. They're out there. There's like, there's like some evangelical psycho with like a like fucking Trump hat and stars and bars like cut off shirt, and like the Red Guards, Austin, out there are like they're zipping from the DSA. Somebody from the DSA <laughs> yeah, fuck yeah. somebody up. It's like a skinhead walks by them. Like, did you all see the um that like Maoist manifesto generator that that's been going around? Or not oh, generator. Not it's like a um somebody basically put a bunch of Maoist and Gonzalo and Mao thought through uh, a deep learning AI, and they just <laughs> generate articles. <laughs> now on their on their blog there's one great one where it's like a it's like they have a reader write a question in and then they reply something like you know it's like what do you guys do for leisure and they're like for leisure we build the communist party the representation of the great people's like mass war that the left comes don't understand is you know I, I don't know this somehow gets into calling people reactionaries within three sentences and i stumbled across this blog and i legit could not tell I, I didn't realize it was an algorithm. Yeah, I really didn't. Poe's law. I don't know. I think I've seen that too, and like it seems a little alg. I mean, it's it's a it's well done, you know. Sort of like a um. If you skim it, it I agree. It does it. You you can tell what it is, but if you skim it, you it all checks out. There's one about like God is communism or God is the proletariat or something that's really funny. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Anyway, I, I wanted to double back to the uh, to this weird theory of nationalism here. Lao Tzu says, um, 
Why say that Chairman Xi is carrying out state building? Because important elements of the bourgeois state, especially spiritual elements, don't exist in China. National identity, for example. Zhuang says, really? I always felt that national identity was stronger among most Chinese people than almost anyone else I've met. Uh, Lao says, what you're sensing is more of a pre-capitalist sort of identity. Um, for instance, typical Chinese parents take it as a as a source of pride, if their daughter marries an American and becomes a U.S. citizen, no longer pays taxes in China, and helps the U.S. military develop guided missiles. But they wouldn't think that she's betraying their nation. They don't have the concept of a nation state. They think being Chinese means you use chopsticks, you were born in China, uh, you stick uh, couplets or chunlian on your doorway during the spring festival. For the bourgeois state, that's not enough. What does the bourgeois state require? An entire set of responsibilities to the nation state, duties that aren't open to discussion, and a higher power. Chinese people don't have this concept. As far as they're concerned, China isn't a nation state, it's just a place. Well, and also there's like, whatever the nationalist argument for China would be, there's just the reality that they're economically interdependent with the United States and the West. And so it's kind of harder for them to just like rail against, you know, American imperialism or whatever, and, and have that, like have a national identity that's defined against that. But I, you know, that's, that yeah. kind of gets at what he's saying about, you know, Chinese civil society uh, is still in, in the modern capitalist sense is still relatively young. Um, yeah. Although, although it's, Call it, calling it pre-capitalist, I mean, you know, you might be right, but I sometimes wonder, you know, what if this is just like a, in classic Leninist fashion, like skip, you know, skipping a stage, you know? <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, I, mean, I think it probably, yeah, I can, I can see what he's saying, though, because like it's, it, they didn't pass through like the nation building projects in the same way as like Europeans did or in the United States, you know, like in these kind of, and they never had an imperial phase either, you know? Like and it's been way. a very back and forth process of like, all right, we're doing socialism now. Okay. We're doing markets now. Okay. We're going to do something in the middle now. Okay. We're going to do it this way now where, you know, like there can be a Chinese, you know, identity, but that that's not as, tied to the as tied to the state in a certain mm. in a certain sense right like people I, thinking I, I, basically yeah, yeah, yeah. people thinking of and because it's such an old country too right, right people just thinking of china as a place well it's so big too you know like that's it's you have it's like this you know very like peasantized you know broken like so, the way their society is sort of set up and yeah it's so fucking big it, it i feel like the there probably people who felt more out of remove from like china as a nation state you know maybe if they are further out from like the cities you know what i mean i mean i suppose but china also has like these long-term traditions of like like central like bureaucracy and like chinese legalism for instance is this like pragmatic and meritocratic sort of like tradition that's existed for like thousands of years and like like th those those things i don't know things that seem really resonant with nationalism are built in and then not to mention they fought this like anti-imperial national like re revolution like and won <laughs> like and um i guess he like tries to address this in the next paragraph if you don't mind let's see um in the Mao era, there was a sort of socialist patriotism, but that sort of patriotism was linked to class identity and the idea that what we're protecting is a new society without exploitation. 
They used the phrase love of country, but actually what they loved was socialism. Later, the era of that protracted provisional government, this, uh, which I, th I think he means um, especially after the, the death of Mao and the arrests of the Gang of Four, but I could be wrong. Um, later, during the era of the protracted provisional government, the sphere of patriotism became extremely awkward. Basically, it was a void. Everyone was busy trying to make money by working or doing business. People have said that the Chinese have no morality, that they only care about making money for themselves. Really what that means is that China has yet to establish the comprehensive set of rules and customs associated with a bourgeois nation state. Um, for example, in the US, if you violate some serious taboo, you're ruined for life. Uh, like those two African-Americans who won medals at the Olympics in 1968 and then did the black power salute during the awards ceremony. What did the American rulers do to them? They didn't punish them directly. They just let them hang out the dry. They couldn't find good jobs. They just worked as common cultures, coaches, making regular wages. The US government did, didn't directly persecute them. Uh, that would have turned them into martyrs. Instead, it just made them watch as other star athletes grew rich and famous while they were denied that. China doesn't have any rules like that. Dong Xiaoping's um, famous statement, it doesn't matter whether the cat is black or white as long as it catches rats. That epitomizes the extreme pragmatism during the era of China's transition to capitalism. Nowadays, that sort of pragmatism has become an obstacle that the state is trying to overcome. Oh, and I guess this feeds into his theory about, you know, potentially wanting something. If China goes to war and things go smoothly, that would definitely stimulate true bourgeois patriotism among the Chinese people. Actually, all patriotism is essentially bourgeois because it only emerges with capitalism in the bourgeois state. Uh, so, I, I, like, again, I'm, I'm saying this in full because I think it's such a novel read of the situation and it really does go against my understanding of what, what happened during the Mao period, what happened during, you know, the period of the, of the truce between the nationalists and the um, communists, and then like what happened afterwards. But I, I guess, I guess this potentially stands to reason because of the way that, you know, the nationalists were beaten in the revolution. Like, but mm, yeah. I, I just find it hard to fit into my head. Like, it's not, you know, I, but it's, it's, it's like a unique perspective I haven't heard before. And, um, Hmm. You know, I see, I, no, I see, yeah, I mean, this whole thing kind of is, you know, because he's basically, he has an up close, like, view of it, he's, he lives there, he's in, he's trying to, it sounds like he's trying to do, like, class struggle work, you know, so, you know, this is sort of, so, like, and that's a lot of the novelty for me of, like, Shuang in general, is that they're actually kind of, like, looking closely at this stuff, you know, and trying, and try, yeah, basically, again, like, investigating, like, the class struggle itself and what's going, like, the conditions, that the condition both sort of politically in terms of life where the Chinese proletariat is at. I think that's like the, that's the real cash value of Shuang. Like, um, cause th this is a lot of stuff that a lot of us just don't really know about. It's also, you know, there is some, still like some opacity in terms of what we get to see, like of, you know, life in China. You know, but for instance, we hear about all like these incidents that are reported, but you know, they don't seem to get out like footage from them or anything like that. A, a helpful patron in the chat says that the CH in Chuang is pronounced like cheap and that Chairman Xi is pronounced like she, like the pronoun. Okay, thank you. <laughs> anyway, 
Um, hey, it's very helpful to have educated patrons popping in, helping us out. Um, so we're we're totally gonna just re-record. Um, oh yeah, little clips of us saying all the names right at the end of this, and then Absolutely. edit those in. Or are we gonna? We'll, we'll have a fat, we'll have a fat ad lib track and do studio punch ends. If they hey, want, I'm, I'm gonna be honest. I'm a fucking American. All right. Like, is, that, been, is that right? You, we, we, we've been butchering. Y'all. We've been butchering this shit for a long time now. I don't have a problem butchering European names. Okay, that's fine with me. And because we've mostly talked about the European tradition, I felt good about that. Look, if they if they want me to pronounce this shit correctly, like they should just spell it phonetically. What are, <laughs> what, are you, what are you giving me this X for? What am I supposed to do with this? If if it's ch- you know, like, or even like Schwang, like just SH. Well, it's supposed to be, uh, it's supposed to be CH as in cheap. Oh, cheap. Okay. Yeah. So, so, maybe, Chuang, so, so like yeah. China. Okay. Chong. Chong. I mean, I'm pro- I'm probably, there's probably some kind of. If that's what it is, then it should, be, it should be, it should be Chuang. like C-H-E-W and then W-O-N-G or something. You know? <laughs> well, we've been, we've been saying it like Chuang. Chuang. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, however, you know, just, just spell it so I fucking know what it is. Like, don't fucking, like, what is it with like Chinese when it gets translated? Like, they have to get real fucking creative with like the vowels and fucking. We should just be learning the original characters. Yeah. And then on Swamp Side, they say. Their skin grew three shades whiter that day. <laughs> well, um, look, I'm just right. talking about how shit is spelled. I don't know what the fuck. Anyway. Um, you don't want to meet at Applebee's after this? Um, I was thinking Cracker Barrel. Oh, um, oh, we're that bad now. <laughs> what? I mean, say what you will about them. They have great pancakes. I mean, they probably wouldn't let me use the right bathroom, but well, I mean, phenomenal decides- pancakes. Honestly, though, who who decides like how this stuff is like spelled phonetically? Like, how does that? No, I'm sure that I'm sure it's been a lot of you know the Anglicization of Chinese names mm-hmm. has probably been done poorly in a way where it's it's not it's not Americans' faults necessarily for always getting it getting it off because you know the way it the way it is brought over to the like Latin alphabet does not always seem to make sense. Well, like, I, and I, I and I doubt that's like necessarily was the way that those traditions were created was even necessarily informed by like Chinese people first. Yeah, you know, our audience is mostly uh, like you know, probably a primarily Anglophone. But like, hey, if there's if there's people in on the mainland checking us out, sorry for butchering your language, and you know, solidarity forever. F- keep fighting the state, <laughs> fighting capital. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Um, let's see, uh, Chuang says here, would you say that China has already become an imperialist country? And then, uh, Lao says, he laughs. That's the kind of question that leftists love to debate. It's really a pointless discussion. It's like debating, when does a boy become a man? At 18? At 20? Then someone will point out the reasons that a 30-year-old isn't really a man yet. What we say object what we can say objectively is that china is a capitalist country of vast overseas territories and that china's rulers are undertaking serious measures to protect those territories as for whether this is lenin uh, whether 
As for whether this is imperialism in Lenin's sense, that requires more careful analysis. It's not something that could be clarified in a few sentences. In any case, China is building and protecting its own spheres of influence, and these are to be used by Chinese rulers to acquire wealth through the capitalist market, rather than through direct plunder or tribute in the sense of pre-capitalist empires. This, this just very, like, summarily says, like, circumvents the debates around Lenin's imperialism, and it's just like, all right, look, like, <laughs> this is not the same thing as pre-capitalist empire, and it's, but it's operating in an, an imperial way through the market, you know, whether it's Lenin's imperialism, who gives a shit? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions where they try to, where he says something insightful, and then they try to pin him down on, okay, what's the exact theoretical position that you're putting <laughs> forward? And he's just like, I, you know, it, he has this great Man. attitude of like, you know, in the past I would have tried to like tell you like, oh yeah, like China's a non-mode during that period of history, you know, a non-mode yeah. of production. He's just like, look, I'm, I'm a lot more careful about making those kinds of statements like, you know, you know, in <laughs> broad sweeping terms now you know there's there's plenty of questions where he laughs at the beginning of his answer and according to the transcript here mm, which yeah. i appreciate you know like he's not trying to be pinned down or over theorize the um stuff that's still in in development for him yeah yeah he's a guy yeah i don't know uh, it's like I used to, you know, I used to get in these like leftist semantics debates, but uh, yeah, I think we all know what's going on. Whether China's yeah. a proper imperialist country or not, I think we all know what's going on. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He's just, he's just like, look, let's just bracket that conversation. That's a longer conversation. Like, look, we know what's going on. Like, it's the 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 dynamic is clear. Let's not play games. Yeah, I mean, actually, there's another there's another question he laughs at the end of uh, or at the beginning mm-hmm. of that that's pretty good. Where uh, they're asking him uh, about all these different Chinese political strands, and he's basically going, "Well, that they're irrelevant, they're irrelevant, they're irrelevant, <laughs> they're irrelevant, etc." And uh, they like go, seven of nine. They go, "Well, what about you?" And he gives some funny banter about being the best. Like he, when he says, "Oh, we're the best," he's not he's not saying like. Yeah. yeah. It's it's actually very self deprecating. He goes, "We're the best, of course. We're pro revolutionary. We don't say revolutionary because that would be exaggerating. There's no revolution for us to be part of." Well, we you know where I know that kind of phrasing from is from uh, Monsieur Dupont's nihilist communism, which is like, I you know. It's supposed to be like a, like a scathing statement of you know, quietism and a much harsher like post leftism, where and like the left has to basically end up being a reactionary counterproductive force. That you know, there's nothing so positive being or you know put forward here. Like there's no, nothing so hard hard being put forward here. But it definitely seems informed by that point of view. Maybe from like a healthier. Maybe in like a healthier way than than nihilist communism. <laughs> yeah, well, because he says he's basically, yeah, they're basically trying to do work with like workers, and I think it's towards the end he says something like, uh, "Let me pull this up here." I I actually really love this section. Um, we we were kind of riffing on it before. Yeah, he goes, um, you know, um, 
all along, the left has been obsessed with programs, parties, lines, etc. But I think we should focus more on mass struggles, in particular workers' struggles, how they're organized, how they subvert the capitalist order from the point of production, how they deal with the problems of self-management, how their antagonism with the entire capitalist state is expressed. This is one thing. The other is to go directly to places where worker struggles are concentrated and participate. But exactly how to participate is something we've been trying to figure out for several years. And only in the past year or two have we finally begun to make a little progress. Mm. Um. I'm cu- I, see honestly like that's actually I'm, I'm more curious to know what what that's all about you know yeah like yeah. why why is it in there like cause, I don't know yeah what what is you know what does he think uh, I, I I guess what he was saying is you know do, focusing on labor related activities for many years that's you know that's his like that's what he feels like is is worth doing I mean he's, he doesn't like elaborate that much about a strategy but um basically his critique of his critique of the, uh, you know, the other like pro-revolutionary left-wing perspectives he mentioned, other than their tendency towards debate, is that uh, they've given up on class struggle. He says that even the pro-revolutionary left-wing Maoists have given up on class struggle. Lenin said, a person who recognizes the necessity of class struggle, but not the necessity of revolution, cannot be called a socialist. But today's Chinese Maoists are even worse. They're not even mature enough to be clear about who they are and what they want. <clears throat> what they call revolution is just abstract radicalism. I'm worried that there might be seedlings of fascism in this sort of radicalism. I heard that in Russia, some people who were Stalinists and Trotskyists in the 1990s have ended up becoming fascists over the past few years. And I see that possibility here among some of the Maoists, but not yet. Um, I, that's, um, I don't know, I find that pretty sobering, and I, I, I kind of find that another cut against a read of this as like a post-left point of view. Actually, it's sort of a common, you know, it's a, it's a, it's just a, a common thing that like people who are convinced of the centrality of class will assert when you abandon class politics, you tend to uh, get into even more reactionary kinds of like, you know, pitting groups against each other. I mean, he basically shows it as a fast track to fascism. <laughs> I like the other quote he pulls from Lenin where he goes, uh, Lenin said that a crisis of rule occurs when the upper strata of society can't continue to rule and the lower strata can't continue to survive. Um, and so he kind of uses that to explain why there isn't a lot of like bottom-up pressure to Chairman Xi. Like the lower strata really aren't having like serious enough problems to continuing to live at, at least as well as their parents. Um, and so you know there there still is like some expansionism it sounds like in sort of the Chinese economy that – you know, it kind of creates space for people to, you know, sort of invest in invest themselves in being in the market or in real estate or some shit like that. You know, um, so yeah, there's still there's still enough. Yeah, it's still kind of an expansionary thing. So the just yeah, the market just growing is basically you know pulls people out of poverty and stuff like that. So it makes sense that they would be able to paper over things on some level. He also talks about how like the state is like really kind of like scared of any kind of mass action, so they don't. So they even like to. They can't really even like openly discourage like the formation of like patriotic societies, you know, or anything like that. Like shit, they used to have like an imp- like rising imperial Japan, where you'd have these groups called like the like the black the black ocean society or like the green dragons, you know, like they they don't want that kind of shit because if they went and like I don't know like beat up some Japanese or something like that might be an international incident. That's just you know going to create problems for the C- you know it's just a headache for some bureaucrat at the CCP. They don't want that shit. So they 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 kind of want to keep like the population just kind of like 
you know, absorbed and like trying to get rich and keep them from, yeah, have it, even do anything that could be potentially like pro nationalist or whatever. Yeah, would be independent of the, of the government. So, so like even though he points to, you know, there being some kind of like potential way that like imperialism could introduce a proper bourgeois nationalism that might sort of galvanize the lower classes in a way that repeats the bourgeois pattern, right? Like, right. taking his framework and assuming, like, some sort of Leninist leap, what if, you know, if we accept that they don't have proper, you know, nationalism, what if they've leaped over that kind of popular participation bourgeois nationalist phase and they've gone directly into late capitalist atomization. Um, because, you know, one of the critiques of totalitarianism, quote unquote, is, you know, their forms of atomization. And most of the liberal theorists coming up with that, you know, didn't think that that applied to liberal societies. But you find that when you run the simulation over and over again, you tend to get that kind of drift away from, you know, coherent mass action. So maybe this is just, you know, a leap over that that initial stage. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but the problem is I th- I do feel like so, because these people are so fresh out of the peasantry, I think maybe there is still some like some so like live social memory of like, you know, like pre-capitalist like, you know, society and shit like that. No, that's that's, uh, I, that's true. I mean, they they have been modernizing for a while, but they're again, like he talks about how Although the peasants are kind of diminishing, and it's mostly like older people who are kind of locked in, basically, the there is still you know there there are still a lot of people who are only just recently like you could say like I guess proletarianized or depeasantized or whatever. So I, I feel like that that is one thing like in its favor that maybe would make it a little bit different from kind of the American you know the lump of lumpification or the American like peasantification at the uh, or like spatial organization of the working class, you know. Like the other thing is too, there's just more people, so they're more like like concentrated in cities. I would imagine. Like I'd imagine, because you know, I mean, there's kind of is a global trend towards urbanization, but I feel like I don't know. Maybe maybe the, maybe they they've been able to like complete like that kind of social atomization project, but I don't know. I think I think that's less likely. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, given the level of class struggle that you do get in China, like. Uh, that does it cuts against you know that stuff that I was floating before, but I'm I don't I don't think I really buy that China doesn't have nationalism either. So it's just sort of a provisional argument. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's I th- I I feel like I'd have to really live there for myself to kind of judge, you know, like if if like because maybe I can kind of see what he's saying whether there's like this disjunction between like the people's actual attitudes and what like the state wants those attitudes to be and like projects that kind of outward and outwardly in media you know that's possible but I feel like that's something you could really only kind of you'd have to evaluate like empirically I don't know right right because I mean there definitely was a different sense of of what it meant to belong to a um to a quote-unquote country uh you know from more of the feudal to the fully developed capitalist uh, or even, you know, what it meant to be part of a country in a uh, chaotic post-colonial development state. Yeah. I, I just, I wonder how like unique the Chinese situation is in that regard. And uh, 
I well, mean, I don't know that it's unique. I, I mean, he might be saying that, yeah. like other post-colonial uh, countries, that national identity took time, something like that. But well, but he also he used that to like draw like conclusions. Like he basically says, if there was a war and it did go badly, that could cause like a lot of unrest. You know, like in a, like in a, in a big way where it might where it might not in America, where we've had a few wars go badly now, and it doesn't really seem to you know. Nothing happens. Well, right. This kind of this kind of patriotism, you know, is old in America, right? <clears throat> and like, you know, pretty moribund, really. Like, if you know, Orange Man, you know, wanted to bush us into Iran, like that would be just that would be like pulling teeth in a way that you know, turning kids in the body bags in two thousand three was not. Like, right. There's just a. A far, you know, there's much more inertia in terms of America's ability to uh, extend itself uh, on the world stage now. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's um, it's interesting. There's a part where he says, to put it simply, the revolutionary praxis of the 20th century is bankrupt. I don't mean that it failed. Failure could mean that it was correct, but it just wasn't strong enough. I mean the entire way of doing things was wrong. and But then they ask, okay, what's the path forward for the 21st century? And he says, I think these historical forces might turn out to be an unexpected source of strength. That is, utter bankruptcy could clear the path for a new social revolution. I don't mean through so-called healthy forces or correct ideas replacing the mistaken and moving forward, but through letting all of this collapse, letting it all completely fall apart. And that's where he then goes on to say, today's leftists are merely eating the corpses of the 20th century. Um, and so, you know, that that's that's something that's that feels salient to me is is um yeah, but this we idea that it's not even necessarily like oh the you know the 20th century left is dead like how do we how do we bring it back or like oh the left is so weak how do we how do we fix the left it's so bad it's such a terrible thing but it, 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 we don't know how historically it plays out that the left is in a position of weakness i mean i, I think that something that's so missing um from most Marx inspired thought today is this, you know, you look at the left, it's a lot of generals, not a lot of foot soldiers. Right. And especially when you're talking people who think theory and, you know, it's all generals yelling at each other about what the strategy should be on Twitter. Um, but they don't ever come to think like, what if the people who carry out these social movements, what if the people who, uh, who start and carry them out, are the ones who lead them, not quote unquote us. Mm. Wait, who? Never mind. What? What are you gonna say? I was like, well, we don't. No, this is stupid. Was, it was like you know we're eating the corpses of the 20th century, yeah, but we don't have any 21st century corpses to eat. You know, <laughs> like I mean, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, if that's the case, yeah, it's like the last big thing. Like it's yeah, people. That's people would kind of pick that over, you know. Well, I guess what it, what's interesting to me is that you have social movements and protests in the 21st century, but they totally resist the attempt to just be like sucked into things. Or when they do get sucked into the left, it totally neuters them, like in the case of Syriza. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, there's, a, there's an entertaining passage here 
where um Lao Tzu um basically says something along the lines of oh like proles don't have politics like when i'm talking about political repression i'm exclusively talking about like the bourgeoisie <laughs> like you know like smaller bourgeoisie or like you know cultural producers which is like a special category for him or something um i i, I it's i find i find this interesting because you know, this is this isn't like an, a perspective alien to the ultra left, the sort of like class struggle Marxism that has a skepticism towards permanent organization. Um, you you do get perspectives this radical and this nihilistic about like the the political left in in Marxism, um, but like. I don't know. This, this, like, uh, if I didn't have those like kind of metrics in my brain, you know, I wouldn't know how to like see this at all in a, in a way because he's he's very close to the communizer position and like shows what a contemporary ultra left like position can really look like in the course of like, you know, in the, in the course of actual like class struggle. You know, assuming so, assuming this guy is is involved with the things that he's, you know that he advocates. Um, I don't know. This is, this is a living tradition of fighting Marxism. It's in a way like it's not, um, it's not as idle as most ultra left theory. Right. But you, you sort of wonder when you're, when you're looking at somebody in the United States, for example, I mean, what's, what, what's the advice to be taken away from a post left position or an ultra left communizer position that says like, Oh, go to where the struggle is. You know, because that that just um, go to go to the struggle. It's like a lot of people are going to be saying, you know, in, in terms of everyday social life, things are, you know, amidst all the political breakdown, things are pretty quiet on that front. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And mm. there's not, you know, a billion strikes every now and then. Workers don't really see unions as a proper vehicle for their interests. Yeah. Um, That's by and they, large the case. And, um, you know, if anything, people, you know, if we were to have a union movement pick up again, I think people would need unions to protect them from their unions. Uh, but it just, it, it just, it, it again brings me back to this, you know, who am I? Am I, am I a leftist or am I part of, am I a part of this society that is transforming itself out of its contradictions? You know, am I, am I part of that? political or that's that social attempt to change things and and it 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 comes down to the sense of um where i see this as still limited and i actually thought this was a fantastic interview but where i see this is still limited is that it still it still clings a little bit to that left perspective of um we're going to go out to the struggle we're going to go to these critical points in you know the the class struggle and we're going to intervene on them rather than this sense of you know people sitting down and thinking about okay what are the what are the top 5 things that capitalism is fucking up in my life and how can i participate not with people mm-hmm. who already agree with me, you know, by going to the DSA meeting or whatever and finding them but with people who also share that problem right that are around me um not as a social collective or or something like that but as 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 an actual with the people near you who aren't leftists you know 
building institutions of social self-administration that aren't part of some regroupment project, but that are just what they are. I mean, it just, it's, it's, how, how do you, how do you do that though? Well, I think, I think what, uh, Jake and I like were touching on earlier is that, uh, Lao has like a, uh, a, a direct sort of answer, <clears throat> excuse me, a direct answer to this. That's not so much like, it's not so much based on, um, the missionary sense of having to go out. I mean, that might be the practical conclusion of it or something, but like, it's, it's not from an, a tremendous confidence in the political agency of pro-revolutionary militants. It's, it's more from, it's, 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 it's more from, um, Laut's idea that, you know, you could say that worker struggle must be at the core. So Chuang presents them with only the struggle of workers as workers against their bosses and workplaces, rather than worker struggle outside the sphere of production, such as conflicts with the police. Because in the U.S., you know, and actually China too, only 30 or 40% of mass incidents are labor conflicts. Almost as many incidents are about land, housing, conflicts with... Uh, Shen Guan, which is apparently police like urban management agents, about the harassment of street vendors. And in the US, the most, impo- the most important struggles over the past few years have been about police brutality. Uh, Lao says, none of these other types of conflicts are. Oh, wait, wow. Uh, my dog has. Um, my, my, my dog has spotted a paper tiger and is going to go tear it up. Go get it. Go get her, John. Go get it. Um, Let's see. None of these other types of conflicts are capable of shaking the foundation of capitalism. Um, Yeah. See, I wouldn't. I wouldn't agree with that at all. I think that. I think that if you look at the way that the conversation has changed, I don't think necessarily through Black Lives Matter activist like groups, but through that initial. um, I think that what happened in Ferguson and other places when when you had these police brutality incidents had a lasting effect on race relations in the United States. Uh, and that's nothing to scoff at. No, no, no. It's nothing to scoff at at all. But, um, you know, he's speaking as a pro-revolutionary and seizing on like a, you know, like an argument that uh, it's a Marxian argument. Um, and, but, but he doesn't like, he does downplay, you know, the absolute centrality, uh, in pro-revolution, you know, of, of those struggles, but he also says, Lao says, on the other hand, judging by past experience, a revolutionary crisis is often sparked not by a struggle in the industrial sphere, but by something peripheral to it, such as a riot, a student protest, housewives trying to get bread for their families. But in each case, those struggles function only as a spark that ruptures the social order. After that, the only thing capable of ultimately changing the capitalist order, the leading force, is the organized industrial working class. At least that's how I see it. Um, that's, that's right. Well, I, I think I get what he's saying too, because if there, look, if there was an active, um, mm-hmm. there was an active workers movement in the United States that was, you know, in the sense of, uh, militant, uh, you know, mass strikes, something like that. Obviously that's something I would take interest in if it weren't happening right in my workplace, but I'd, I'd be interested in how do I bring this in? How do I bring this social, this expression of social self-interest into my life? Mm. Not again. Not how do I go to this and and you know. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. No, I mean, I th- I think that. So I think it stands to reason that you could take Lao's point of view and 
you know, participate in the, you know, quote, peripheral struggle that concerns your self-interest around you. Um, yeah, I mean, but, like, if, Tzu, if someone wants to go to the workers and get a job, like, and then organize workers at the job, like, what's wrong with that? Like, I don't... <laughs> Like, like, yeah, I don't, I don't. Well, see that level of externality. That. I mean, in in terms of what you're like, you're just going to get a job at a factory. Like, what people do that all the time. I mean, just because you did it for weird, just because you did it for weird, weird reasons. I mean, if it makes sense in your in your real life to go to go work at a factory, I mean, that's what makes sense for you to do. But I just don't see the point of missionary work on on that front. Yeah, I I do think that and you uh, are going to you are going to say if you're doing it for missionary work and you're not there because mm-hmm. it was, you know, something you so like saw you had... an interest in, then it, I think it's going to I think the bullshit radar is going to go off for a lot of people. Well, I, I even if it doesn't, I think that like, let's say, I don't know. Like guru people. Plenty of communist parties, fucking in the history, have sent their people to go work in the factory. Right. This is this exactly what I'm gonna say. Like this happened with the new left. Like, and I don't really, you know, I don't know. I don't have a problem with someone joining, like, just trying to get a job at a factory and then like trying to form a union. That's fine. But you know, some like crusty guru that takes some like I don't know, confused, you know, like lost little bookish nerds <laughs> and like convinces them to drop their uh, aspirations and go you know work in a factory for ideological missionary what the, reasons what were those nerds aspiring to though what I, were they doing that's so goddamn important i don't know but it was self-directed and something more autonomous than some like crusty you know pedagogue kind of they more would, shaping they them to their will real estate people or brokers or they would have been like some they, they would have just gotten asshole jobs anyway. Maybe, maybe, or or they they might have. I don't know. They might have like developed some other kind of skill set that would have benefited the you know the movement in some unprecedented way. You gotta like like let what people develop. Like what? I don't fucking like what know, develop Jake. ideas that like if you bring them to the workers, like you're like I don't know. Though you can't bring them to the work. Like like what else could they have done? Like I don't I don't know, like. I mean honestly, if you're asking me, like developing kind of like realistic you know pro-revolutionary perspectives is work that's not you know for the workers it's you know for pro-revolutionaries to get to orient themselves that's the point of that shit i think you have to recognize your real social position when you're doing something and so that that's uh, when you when you ask this abstract question of oh what should we do i mean that's a that's actually going to be individuated and context specific, right? But mm-hmm. if you're part of the, you know, the intelligentsia in some way, then I think, you know, increasing access to information, something like, you know, that that kind of stuff like WikiLeaks or whatever, you know, it it it, not saying exactly that project, but I, I'm saying How, that that so basically like the kind of like mar- just march through the institutions and like. Or I mean, but isn't that like isn't that kind of what the PMC like tried to do like in the seventies and eighties and they just became no I don't I don't mean to say you go into and you're just like oh things I'm saying in your in your personal time you know that you would you know in attunement with your real life right not 
LARPing as as uh, a worker if you're not a worker or you know, but a lot of a lot of us these get, days are on it, the cusp, right? I mean, if you get a it, job though, you're a worker. Like if they go and work in the factories, they're workers now. They're working in the factory. You know what I mean? A lot of these people would probably still have reserves in a, in a way where um, I mean they still be. I mean wor- some workers have reserves. You know, like. I like the Teamster guys I talked to all drove like Dodges and shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I don't think ultimately like pe- like people are that different. And if someone from like a you know PMC background decides to take a factory job if it's available, you know, no problem really. Like, it's just that's uh, not even what I'm hating on. I'm I'm hating no, on no, this no, idea I, of like I know a- I I know like and that's not what I'm hating on either. You know the po- the point is is just like you know political orientation towards because. I don't know. Is this guy talking about going to get a factory job to unionize it? I don't. Like, I mean, I don't, I'm just saying that. That's we what have no doing. idea what he's actually like right. advocating. Like that's why we got to get him on the show. Yeah, yeah. Get him on the show and hopefully not arrested. Um. <laughs> well, he's done actually, this. Actually, I think he's calling in now. Look, I got him on the phone right here. Oh my god! No, I'm just this one around. Like a, no, no. He, he he actually just texted me. He says. <laughs> I agree you, with Grant's interpretation of my. That's crazy. Yeah. I didn't even realize he would say no, that. that. That's funny because he just texted me and said, "Hey, you want to get brunch? Like, let's get Bellinius because this, you know, I know this place downtown. It's off the chain." So anyway, I guess I was I was just saying I don't know. I mean, it's like we could sit here and like make fun of like you know the like uh, you know Lou Rouge or whoever the whatever the fuck that was in like the seventies. We cut the they hippies cut yeah, their hair, yeah. went to the factories, and found the people in the factories had long hair. You know, and like we, yeah, and like all, stayed in the closet and stuff. Yeah, yeah I, mean, no, I mean they totally misread society as like oh like the noble like new Soviet man kind of worker, and then they get there yeah. and then Archie Bunker Marxism. I mean, I do, I do feel like, look, you read, you read this stuff, and either it gives you a not useful perspective on things that you could help people apply to class struggle, or it doesn't. You know, like, I mean, I don't think the proletariat is always going to spontaneously and automatically do the right thing, or you know, whatever direction they lead things is the correct direction. Proletariats fuck up all the time. You know, look at history. So it's like, and I also feel like I don't know. This is kind of like subject. I mean. I, th- I think these things are a little more fluid than maybe like a, this is kind of like these conceptions are being brought up as where it's like, what is what is the separation between like the intellectuals and the proletariat or whatever? But like proletarians can intellectuals can come from the proletariat. And, yeah, I don't know. I, I just feel like we're create, almost creating like this kind of like purified idea of like, you know, the class consciousness as it exists out there in the class is like the primary thing and that we have to like f- tail that or that we can't like see. In no, front of it. I, I don't even well, I don't this, even this think the point need of the to be uh... ideologically communist or whatever. I mean, I think that's putting the cart before the horse, really. Well, this is the difference between, uh, you know, Luxembourg and Lenin's kind of conception of the vanguard. And, you know, in a way, like. Lenin was picking up of Kautskyan, at least, orthodoxy about what a vanguard was. And it's a sort of deep split in the Marxist tradition. I don't think it's like that frivolous a debate. I mean, I have my, you know, I have, I have my like loyalties on this. But, um, you know, it is hard to orient when you have like a less active class struggle than what's going on in China. You know, it's hard to take this orientation in the same way. Um, and like... I, you know, this, it resonates with me. It ultimately, like, if there were, you know, if there was, like, labor activity in in the area that I'm in, like, I feel like it would be worth kind of, like, supporting that stuff. And, 
you know, if there was these so-called peripheral struggles in the activity I'm in, I don't, or excuse me, in the area I'm in, I think it would be worth supporting those peripheral struggles to the degree that, you know, this is a thing that's happening around you. Why the fuck not? Yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing. You, you Like, you you are necessarily, like, opportunist, and you have to sort of work within, like, the conditions that you have, you know? Um, yeah, opportunism, yeah, I mean, bra- bracketing the Marxist kind of, like, definitions of opportunism. Like, I don't think it's... I think it's possible to take to take on opportunities without being like too instrumentalizing you know like well right i mean i think you could you could actually think what this guy like you could think like okay like having your lever at the focal points of production like that's the most important thing um i mean you could if you take that perspective and you're organizing in america what that could just mean is that you're in objectively shitty organizing conditions yeah right no i mean that is often the case and the, and so you just kind of have to decide, okay, like, what do I, what do I do here? Do we like try and kind of lay the groundwork to like sort of create something that could um, target these focal points, you know, or do we kind of engage with the sort of existing like movements, quote unquote, that are in my like immediate like purview? Like that's yeah. that's sort of a question, I guess, you have to figure out kind of what's right for you. Well, and also, I, I think, but, but I think what that comes down to is that without a broader social mass of support uh, that is, you know, cross industry, you end up with these so called critical points of production. You literally just slow down things for everybody else in ways that they really can't see immediate benefit in, and it becomes socially isolated and gets, you know, strength suffocated and i I think that 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 especially you know you you so that's why i i I don't tend to subscribe to like a key points of like oh if we just shut down the right levers like and i don't think that's even what's being said in the interview per se like that it's that simple but Um, yeah um, i'm I'm over yeah i'm oversimplifying this obviously I, i don't i don't think that's even your position right that oh if we just did these like critical points but it is it is rhetoric you hear sometimes and and I think that you you miss that if if there's not really a something bigger going on where there's going to be social solidarity with with those people outside of their immediate workplace, um, you know, you can go salt some factories or whatever, but if it's isolated, it's isolated. I mean, well, what I mean, effect can you have? You so I think that that ha- that really is why I, I think that you know if we're addressing an audience, it's going to take people from a lot of different places in the world acting on their social self-interests um, in, in a way that is selfish and that, that that's going to be, um, that's going to, that's not going to just be one critical point or another. And I mean, so it's advice that it's advice that's necessarily context specific, I guess. Yeah, but I mean, your social self-interest can also be like gamified, um, and kind of basically, that's just you know, you could say like the like the yuppie generation were acting on their social self-interest. You I, know. I think of that more as narrow civil civil society type interests, more so than um, you know, like the like the kind of thing uh, Marx criticized Stirner for was basically that it's like okay, yeah, if you if you want to be selfish, you can go ahead and within the context of the existing system, 
promote your interests. But if you act on social self-interest, then you're you're not just moving the furniture around; you're <laughs> affecting the shape of the room. Well, yeah, this is this is a a long-term rationality that is hard to connect to everyday life, but is vital. <clears throat> right. But it's, you know, it's, um, I mean, if we're Marxists, if we're communists, if we advocate changing not just, you know, this policy or not just the rules of the game, but if we're advocating changing the game, you know, we have to, like, connect that long-term rationality to the immediate. That's the, really the, the, the enigma of class interests and how to mobilize class interests in these, you know, social self-interest ways. Cause I mean, I, I do agree that these things exist and that like, but you know, the, the, the idea of, you know, sectional interests for the proletariat, you know, taking, you know, more short and potentially medium term, you know, interests as being more important, you know, it's, it's not like, it's not negligible. For the terms of like this points of like leverage example thing or whatever, let me uh let me put, like bring a concrete example right in the United States recently this is the our Walmart campaign that remember that well I, I was I read this article by this like uh, union guy and he was explaining like part of the problem with their strategy was that they didn't start with like the distribution centers right because if 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 you were like doing a broader like unionization effort um. If you're salting and trying to basically yeah, organize like Walmart workers, you would want to start at the at the most like vulnerable point, which would be the distribution centers, right? Like you get those guys like in terms of prioritizing where you go. If you go there first, you're in a much better position to like organize everybody more broadly because you have leverage, you know. Like our Walmart workers would organize stores, but then they just close the store, you know. So, so like in in. In trying to base, yeah, like in class struggle, in trying to organize like the working class, like yeah, there, you know, it's sort of like you kind of want to like prioritize your resources in certain places that will, you know. Yeah, yeah, you want to attack the, you want to attack logistical, you want to attack the logistical choke points, not you know sometimes the most visible thing. Right. Yeah, I agree with that to a pretty large extent. I just also think that you, um, you actually need both in a way where like, so if you just have the distribution right. workers worked out but then all the people at the stores are just kind of like not um in any way uh, a militant workers movement then right. they're actually going to come into competition with the people at the distribution centers if that bridge hasn't been made and that right. has to do too with like you know this is one of the major things for class struggle now is that there's this there's this separation between circulatory and service labor and uh mm -hmm. you know productive industrial labor that's even takes place on the level of global economy though i mean people sometimes overstate how little industry there is in the united states it's something that has happened and uh lao in this interview is also you know also says that you know some of that like some of that like service work is you know actually pretty important for keeping things moving like and, you know, d doesn't have a typical, like, productivist, like, industrial labor, capital volume one only, you know, like, kind of view of what an essential proletariat is. It's much more about, you know, the overall circuit, um, which I thought was right. kind of unique, interesting. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah. And I, I don't think he discounts, like, other sections. It's just kind of like there's a, like, leftists should prioritize, like, this these areas for a number of, or 
yeah, you should prioritize these for areas for a number of reasons. Like he has a pretty nuanced analysis, you know. Yeah, I, I definitely think people yeah. should read this. I mean, I think it's a really good, uh, it's a really good interview. It it's it's longer than I remember it when it came mm-hmm. out. I don't remember what year this originally came out. Maybe last year or the year before. Yeah. Um, but I I still found it despite its length being a pretty easy quick read anyway somehow just because it was really interesting and so and when i say long i just mean long for an interview i don't mean you're reading war and peace mm-hmm. so I, I definitely recommend people check this out check out the journal in general it's mm-hmm. um it's a journal that deserves uh, more support than it has really yeah volume two came out uh last year um is yeah. there another one on the way um i mean eventually i think some of the people involved are probably involved with getting endnotes five out um you know whenever that happens i'm i'm looking forward to it um let's see there there's one last thing i i want to uh want to read from here because i just think it's i don't know i think it's fun and again clarifying for this perspective Again, it seems squarely ultra-left to me. Um, Last question. Considering that workers in China don't have any organization of their own, do you think that any of the existing unions or NGOs could play a positive role in helping them to get organized? Chuang says, Lao says, no. (laughs) Simply. Chuang says, what about those NGOs that see themselves as promoting the development of class consciousness? Or Lao says, some some say they're making revolution. He just laughs. Chuang's like, well, I know of some that say they're doing the preparatory work in order to support a revolutionary revolutionary movement whenever one emerges. And then Lao goes, preparing for revolution. And he laughs. That's like a boy saying that he's doing preparatory work in order to become a man. There's no such thing as preparing for revolution. There's only making revolution. Chuang goes, you don't think that before it breaks out, there's some preparatory activities we should do? Then Lao goes, the Communist Party has an unfortunate tradition known as the Communist Youth League. It divides young people into league members and party members, whereas in reality, this process is indivisible. This distinction into a stage of preparation and a stage of finally doing something is limiting, including on the level of thought. It's like the distinction between economic and political struggle. In reality, they're the same thing. Any strike could be a mini-revolution. Any struggle, regardless of however limited its demands may be, contains some basic elements of revolution within it. It's a negation of capitalist order and an awakening of the worker's own power. In this sense, there's no difference between preparation and finally doing something, as if you were preparing ingredients before you cook a dish. Chuang says, this sounds a bit like Rosa Luxemburg's critique of Lenin, no? Lao says, you mean, the, you mean regarding the question of what a role should be? I think the left-wing praxis of the 20th century has already exhausted itself, and all these people trying to walk in their f- footsteps like certain labor NGOs, secretly doing reading groups with workers, they're like... Oh, here it is. You know that medical phenomenon where you lose an arm, but you still feel like the arm is there? That's the phantom limb. Um, All the praxis of the 20th century is essentially a continuation of 19th century social democracy. The left believe themselves professional political agents. Among those who believe themselves to be revolutionaries, workers, a separate group different from ourselves, whom we had to lead. The workers were to be led and liberated by us. It was a disaster. So Grant, you, you 
read that. Yeah, yeah, you you read that in the beginning, and um, I don't know. I I'll just all of this is is just worth reading. That's um, why I want to hear what he's doing, though. You know what I'm saying? Like, like what? It, it, the next question here is: I'm then what's the path forward? I I, I think you read this too. You read this too, Grant. Like, um, the is this the one where they ask? So, how could we break out of this dead end? Or is this before that? That's the one before then. Yeah, eating the corpses. Yeah, 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 yeah. You read this. You read this. But I guess yeah. What he says is that we need a mental breakthrough, a qualitative leap. But then he criticizes the uh, you know oh we're going to invent the new theory and that's going to be the whole yeah. the whole thing. But I think what's yeah, what's yeah. nice about this is he says I should know. I've been one of those people, you know, like I, um, yeah, that's, that's a kind of sobriety that I'm like, I'm very partial towards, but also, I mean, you know, it's fair to criticize this guy for, <laughs> for this kind of self undermining kind of point of view. I like, don't think it's self undermining actually. I mean, if, if you had a thought to finish, finish, but no, I, I don't know. Like we need a mental breakthrough, a qualitative leap, but you know, well, you know, like you have to you have to go and take part in the struggles. And yes, there is a sense that he wa- he doesn't he doesn't want there to be a going to the struggle. You have to just be part of it. Well, I I guess that's the thing is you could look at oh the so he says after many years of fumbling around my conclusion after he says I've been one of those people. I know it's a dead end. He says, after many years of fumbling around, my conclusion is that the only way out is workers' struggle. Um, you have to go and directly take part of them. And I think I think you know, workers' struggle here is. Do you think there's the broad? This is the broader sense of workers' struggle here. I think that might be what he means. That, that's what I'm hopeful that he means is actually that he's not just saying like, okay, the str- I get, you could take what he's saying two ways, and I think one's much better than the other. One way you could take it is, you know, I thought about it, all these theorists, um, but what I realize is the left needs to go out to these worker struggles, and we're going to be the catalyst, and that's going to be what makes it goes off. But that's not what he says necessarily. That doesn't he just seem says, like consistent with everything else that he's saying. He, he <laughs> just says, my conclusion is that the only way out is worker struggle. And that could very well be him saying along the lines of um, – you know, the, the, the task of workers emancipation is the task of the workers themselves. And I think right. that's a wonderful sentiment. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I like where he ends up. I, um, <clears throat> I think part of the mental breakthrough is, I, I don't, I don't know how to articulate this exactly, but people doing decades of like public communist thinking yeah, there's going to be a lot of trends hopping and stuff, but I, I do think even the most like vulgar, like trendy bullshit sometimes has like kernels of truth for why people start adopting and rejecting different trends because there's certain kinds of resonances with the existing situation, you know, at best, right? Like that se- that can win out, you know, especially when, especially when there's poor performance and there start to be feedback mechanisms that could prevention could start checking. Uh, some of the, I don't know, 
some of the greater idiocies. I'll put it this way. You know, people that thought that Corbin could be a revolutionary vehicle are, you know, hurting right now in a way that I think it's difficult to memory hole. And I'm not saying people won't memory hole it, but there are a lot of people that will learn from it, right? Like, and uh, maybe some, like, I don't know, maybe in the future generations, <clears throat> like these, uh, these experiences will actually come to some cumulative fruition. Like, and that might not cause the revolution, but it'll definitely help pro-revolutionaries orient themselves when that time comes. And I, I know that the milieu around, you know, leftist publishing and media and whatever doesn't select for the best theories. I know that, you know, harshly and intimately, but it does, you know, uh, but it, it selects for things that resonate. And I'll just have to hope that uh, that produces better theory over time. Well, and also what produces better theory over time isn't that the pro-revolutionaries finally figure out the right gospel to bring to the workers. If you look at mm -hmm. his history, it's been that workers have dragged the Marxists kicking and screaming into relevancy through their own activity. Right. And that's when you when you get somebody yeah. like Lenin, even for all my criticisms of Lenin, I mean, he's a smart guy. <laughs> Lenin is and the the Russian Marxists are able to articulate their Marxist party organizing, not in anticipation of waves of radical workers, mass industrial action. Mm -hmm. It's they they're able to articulate themselves in the you know, in the context of, of, of a militant workers movement. And so I think that some of this is actually going to be, you know, if there are leftists who are going to be useful to this future, um, to, to organization of the real movement that I, you know, I don't even think it's gone away, but the organization of it, then I think that it's, it's not that we go out and we fix things, but I think that, it, that, you know, the, the good ones are going to be dragged kicking and screaming to relevancy by the force of history. Uh, there's a, there's a tradition that's associated with Mao of programmatism that, <clears throat> that I think it might be the most, I don't know, might be the, the tendency that has the most kind of like potential relevance for the future. And I don't think we're all ready for, you know, to write the programs or whatever, but if we were, it would be because, you know, when experiencing these kind of moments of upheaval or whatever, you know, sense of real movement there is in society, you kind of get a sense of what people care about. You chew on it and then you could try to translate it into some kind of like revolutionary sort of policies or whatever. Right. And, and that doesn't mean there's no use for, that doesn't mean there's right. no use for socialist <clears throat> intellectuals, but it means that what we're here to do is clarify yeah. to a very, yeah, from uh, the to, the, to the masses. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's what's called the mass line in, uh, in the, in by, by Mao and in the Maoist tradition. But I mean, Julius Martov, like articulated the same thing when he and Lenin were still friends. Like, in like the early, like the late like 19th century when he was organizing like Yiddish workers 
Well, I think the problem with mass line is that it actually seems to be how do we take what the masses think, translate it into like lefties, like <laughs> yeah. ideological shit, and then give it back to them as like the <laughs> like a perfected crystallized theory rather than well, people it, saying like maybe we're behind people on this thing. But the, like the Maoists would perceive themselves as being like behind, like we're behind. We have to go to, you know, like take the like this is, the masses develop this thing. We have to understand it and then reinterpret it and then make them bring them to consciousness or some shit like that. You know, right, right, right. Like it, it's a, but it's a sort of like, I don't know. It's a, one of these weird like Christian conceits where the where the sense of, you know, backwardsness and shame kind of disguises an elitism. And there are better versions of this. There are like kind of, you know, steel man versions of this kind of thing that aren't so shitty that um, I don't know. That's what was behind a lot of a lot of uh, like early like Yiddish, like social democratic, like labor struggles. Um, like that's that was the kind of special role that activists could take during those times. Like, th- yeah, that, I mean, but that like, had doesn't, a future doesn't... at that point. I, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe there's no use for programs ever again. I'm a little skeptical of that. If there is, it would be that sort of way of doing things that, that like, <clears throat> I think Grant's like spirit is essentially correct. And even though Maoists, you know, talk like that, I don't know if they mean it. Like, um, uh, but don't you think that that stuff would like that stuff wouldn't be popular if it didn't kind of like tap into that idea in some way for people? Well, that's just it. It has to be po- like, when contemporary Maoists do the mass line, their resulting programs do not resonate the way that the things that, like, the inputs did. You know, the, in, the inputs in the, like, did not, in the, in the way that people, like, the people that they sourced their, you know, potential inspiration from, right? Like, their demands apparently do not end up resonating the way that the initial, like, desires did. Why? Well, it's, it, with something like Mass Line, too, it's like they'll get something like, oh, um, American proletarians don't want to fight a war against Iran. Like, we can clarify to this to them that their position is defend Iran. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it becomes <laughs> this way of like, oh, oh so no. we, we get, okay, based on your own social interests, you don't want to get drafted um and and you have a direct material stake in there not being a war let's not appeal to that direct material stake though in fact let's call it privileged and instead uh focus on hashtag defend iran because you know they love workers so much yeah (laughs) and then then, you know as if they've participated in no imperialist shenanigans in the fucking region i mean what they're up to in iraq not at all uh not at all sketchy, of course. It's it's just yeah. silly. It's just very silly because they they take it. They a, the mass yeah. line ends up taking. Maybe they're just you know, not doing it right. Some quote, I mean, and then repeating yeah. repeating back the Maoist ideological line every Cause, time. Because there's Maoists third worlders who point out stuff and say the same thing and be like, yeah, because they're first worlders, like they can't do it here. It doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, they essentially are post program for the uh, for the industrial core. Um, <laughs> But I don't know. I th- I think it's interesting to think about like what makes this guy's point of view unique. Like, um, what does it look like to have this kind of like? It it is a critical engagement. 
with you know ortho- orthodox Marxism, but it shares some of the essential points. Not exactly with program, not exactly with party, but um, defends more the core of Marxism than you know the communizers generally do. I think it's a really worthwhile perspective. Well, I think yeah. Look, the, to me, like the the value of it is, it's most interesting to me. Least, I think his point of view to me is less interesting than just kind of him kind of providing a survey. Um, kind of a you know, he has his own opinion on it, obviously, but he's basically giving a survey of the kind of contemporary class and political forces in China, right? And with a little bit maybe about kind of the political the political and economic rule of the Chinese state and how that kind of works um that's what that is i mean i don't i don't know i don't know if if he's if his like subjective point of view he's like cracked you know some kind of like inner secrets or whatever and and like we need to like tease out like what it like i don't think we i don't think how much i don't know how much value is for to teasing out like what his underlying perspective is i think like the kind of just the survey of Almost from a journalistic standpoint, what's happening there is more interesting to me. Well, I I have to agree with Lexi on that actually that that there is something interesting in the way that this theory uh, defines itself, uh, almost against a communizer, more Bakuninist turn. You know that it keeps some of those Marxian uh, cores. Um, but I also think Jake, something you're saying that that does make sense is that the the person being interviewed himself here doesn't mm-hmm. want to necessarily be pinned down to a single theoretical position that like, all right, this is my now and forever yeah, 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 yeah. theory that the left can then like apply skepticism to and debunk in their own s- stupid way or whatever. Like he's, he's flexible. Well, I, I feel um, like on some mm-hmm. stuff he just doesn't fully have like an opinion or, or he's, he's hesitant. He doesn't feel like he has a firm enough ground to like, or, or the time really. Right. Because sometimes well, right. you yeah. give, you give people a sound bite and they can totally twist your, your words about something that's a very complex theoretical Right. There's there's a certain degree of like intellectual humility, I think, here. And there's just areas where it's kinda like, I don't really know the answer to that. I I all he, yeah, all he's what he really seems to stand on is yeah, like I do know there's a Chinese Illuminati and I do know that it, we need to it's about worker struggle. That's a that's the thing mm-hmm, that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. That's what's primary, yeah. right? Everything else which is like reflects the aporia, the sense of uncertainty. That comes from somebody having considered many options over a long period of time and found all the answers wanting. And I think that's something that we, you, we really need to learn from our, like, you know, pro, whatever pro-revolutionaries that we find interesting is that, like, there's a form of, you know, deep, like, form of, you know, like, historical skepticism about established kind of political options that I think is, you know, probably a, a part of the core of Marxism. That's like, that's, you know, like, or part of the core, at least, of Marxist thought and a lot of the earlier Marxists, like... Well, there isn't a lot of certainty in the social sciences, you know? That's something you just kind of have to make peace with. You know, you have to maintain, I think, a certain degree of indeterminacy about these kind of things because we really don't know what's going to happen, you know? Like, it's, it's tough, it's tough, you know, like this stuff... Marxist theory and Marxist the the developments in it they it can it can serve as like a guide in certain ways um, towards understanding the forces you're dealing with you know the, the stuff like that but it's you know it's not some fucking like 
magical portal into the future. You know, you can't like you could you it can it can help to orient you, but you kind of have to you have to understand there's still a lot of variables at play, and it's hard to know things for certain. Like I like I did like his thing, yeah, about like imperialism. Like it's it's like the question of like when does a boy become a man, right? Like it's the like these some of these things are in some ways the question is in some ways so complex that it's impossible to really even know. You know, it's it, it gets to be only almost like theology to certain right, yeah. and, and that gets it that gets it how some of these conversations on the left, you know, whenever the latest Latin American dic- dictatorship falls or whenever you have a um you know the israel palestine debate comes up and you have you know people railing about zionism or 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 the dangers of nationalism on one or the other side of that culture war you have to think like well that is the I get into, yeah israel palestine is just, uh, i don't think that i don't think it's one. about christmas i don't think that's about, <laughs> no, 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 what i don't I'm think it's about a war on christmas you have to think. You're going to have to let me finish to understand what I was saying. Yeah, yeah, right. So oh, sorry, what I'm right. saying is that so much of that is disconnected from what's really happening between Israel, Israelis and Palestinians or what's really happening between, you know, people in, say, Bolivia or Venezuela. Right. It becomes about the Anglo left signaling different political identities to each other and having to weigh in on Twitter on the latest thing and and d- define themselves in this way that that's really irrelevant to internationalism itself. And so that's why mm-hmm. I really like the moments where he's dismissive of like, Oh, is China an imperialist country? Like, because it's, it's like, are we actually talking about this half the time? It's like, are we actually talking about this or are we just litigating left factional internals right now? Like, are we actually having a conversation about the people whose lives are at stake or are we defining who's a left common, who's an orthotrot and who's this and who's that? Uh, it seems like it's the latter a lot of the time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, we, yeah, it's, it's kind of the curse. We can't all agree, though, it was a coup in Bolivia, right? We're all, we're all on the same page on that, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it was it was a coup. Like, No, I don't really think so. I've talked to Bolivians about it. Look, I mean, there was definitely right-wing people taking advantage of it, but you, Morales concretely lost a lot of his support through fucking up. And you can't no, no, no. deny it. Both, I mean, both so, things can be true. Allende lost, yeah. Allende lost a bunch of support. I mean... I, like, Mar- Mar- I just don't think you can reduce Mar- it to one thing or the other. I mean, it, but you, you could say that about any one of like the Latin American coups, though. Like, you could say, like, you could make like similar accusation. It's still no, a coup. No, Mar- Morales fucked up. Like, Morales like had one of the it was just one of the most popular politicians like in the modern world, and like it was just objectively a coup. Like, you, you like it. It would be yeah. culture warring to say it's not like. I don't know. I think the question of whether it's a coup. I think the question of whether it's a coup, you know, like. That's one of those things I don't think like, is actually semantics. Like, it would, well, like, listen, by definition. You're using, you're using the idea of do you admit it's a coup, a coup or something? It ends up being about loyalty to the left figure who was deposed. It ends up being about this, like, this litmus test where all I'm saying is that. Uh, if you, I don't care whether it was a coup or not that much. I want to have a cross-sectional analysis of why this happened in Bolivian society. And you can't just use the fear of the right as like this stick to say, you know, like we can't talk about this. And I know you're not telling me not to talk about it, but it just – when you have these ideological like st- – 
points of 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 unity of of you know it has to be a coup um it's just not even the discussion i want to have you know i'm trying mm-hmm. to say the same thing that he was saying about imperialism where it's like that seems like a distraction from just doing some goddamn history on this yeah i mean um but it was a coup well, <laughs> i mean like the, the the only thing that i have to say to add to this conversation is that what made me convinced that that this was a coup was a bunch of leaked um was a bunch of leaked conversations among like the uh the right wing kind of like opposition politicos and some of the people in the military because yes there were people loyal in the military that you know like asked him to step down like because they didn't want to fire on protesters again that part checks out however like there you know there were like it, it sounds a bit conspiratorial but there's like the school of the americas that a lot of like you know officers that are you know more loyal to the united states than like than might otherwise be like can get into positions of power and you know like throughout latin america i mean it makes sense if you want to have like a nice social position to have friends in the united states and try to like wiggle your way into like a international sort of like i don't know like i would fucking do it if i went to like law school or whatever like it just it's just what you do like that's what that's like um and and yeah so like these people were in like high places there's recorded conversations of them talking about how to like you know make this kind of thing happen you know before i like looked at these conversations I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I thought it was a coup exactly. It could. It could have just been the military. It could have just been the military approaching them. But I think I understand what you're saying about the um about the culture war. But uh, and and I well, and I, I feel agree like you that. haven't actually extrapolated yourself from the culture war. You've just adopted like a novel position like towards it. You know what I mean? Like you're so invested with saying it's not a coup because you don't want to like lend credence to people's like already existing perspectives, right? So you're like it's you're you're putting your argument. You're, it's like a situational place to put your argument. But you can see then why people would bend the stick the other way on other things. Distracting. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying that because look, I, I think that if that I think that if the level of social pressure that morality was experiencing had continued then he would have had to step down anyway right and that that would not have like the military was putting a stop to it to a process that was going to end in morales's stepping down no matter what you had him i was talking to somebody who was um but how does that make it less of a coup though i don't understand i was talking to somebody Why do I need to say it's a coup? I mean, look, the, I mean, the, it just objectively was though. I don't know. Like it does, it's like I, that I, a variety of forces set off the thing, and that if you mm-hmm. look at yeah. the um, look, you can even articulate a pro moralist position from you know what I'm what I'm saying if you wanted to. But what I'm saying is that he was the writing was on the wall okay and that that was initiated not by the right but by bolivian society that's true but the right that's benefited true. from it that's true to, yeah th- this is there there was no alternative to the official left there you know what whatever kind of autonomous like activity in society had been you know i either like taken under the wing of the official left or outright attacked by the official left and so 
when that moment came, society was too disoriented for well, one reason or another to, to come up with, with another option. And so the, the vacuum was filled by the right. It, well, it was, was a sort of tragic a, dimension of that. I was like, talking to a, a Morales supporter. I was talking to somebody who said, Morales is great. I loved Morales when he first went into power, but he lost my support when he started telling his supporters, not even the police, he started telling his supporters to block the protests against his corruption, you know, to block, mm-hmm. you know, to he wanted his people to, to, to right, stop right. to it, you know, and, and to stop the protests. And, and so it's not, you know, I, I just, I think that yeah. the language of the coup is built in this, this idea of, you know, Know, portraying it as this singular reactionary event that happened and and it ends up being about defending the left's man on a horse who precipitated the situation ultimately i mean i think the conversation is distracting but i think i, I mean i i feel like if you examine the evidence that i examine it's hard it's hard to say that that it, it wasn't both of these things like both of these things can be true it's there's no logical contradiction there and that a lot of the memeing <clears throat> Excuse me. A lot of the memeing about whether it's a coup uh, is about avoiding uh, Morales's kind of self-inflicted, like um, unpopularity. And well, I think it's I think it's more about counter uh, counter signaling liberals who will just kind of be like, he was a, he was a terrible man, and now he's gone, and now it's freedom. You know what I mean? It depends on like, that's what dep- people I think are reacting to. Oh, yeah, but it depends on which milieu you're in. And I, I, that's true. And I, that's very and true. I think that's the, that's the thing that makes these conversations not very communicative when you have to take partisan lines in this way is that, you know, it might make more sense to stress the coup part in one milieu. It might make more sense to stress the, you know, the actual like anti-democratic fuckery that was going on like like by by morality i mean like I, the, the elections i mean their elections actually were vetted i mean he no, sh- maybe he shouldn't have done term limit or extended term limits but like like there wasn't actually I, from what i've read there wasn't actually like a case for him doing like election fraud or whatever they were there, there was there was mixed there, yeah it's it's complicated there was mixed reports from the same organization and like and then, like, it, yeah, it just, like, wasn't a popular idea for him to hold on to power like that. And it's because he didn't have, like, a good successor. And they, he was afraid of a Maduro situation. And so, the, as we talk about with General Intellect Unit, you know, the butthole clench it can be itself the problem, the thing that sets off the instability. Like, sometimes that clench reaction is the catalyst. And that is totally what was fucking happening there. Like it, yeah, I mean, I guess I don't see like a lot of tankies on social media, so I guess right, you know, for me, that's not really something that I yeah. think about too much. You know, yeah, I guess I I will say I'm I I think I'm still with Jake on like my ambivalence towards the butthole clench. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm raising the I'm I'm raising the butthole banner high. <laughs> you know what? I have to admire it, even if it's not. Language, even if it's language I embarrassed myself saying in the past, <laughs> I, I I think that I'm proud I'm proud of you and I respect you for uh, for your insistence that Swampside Chat says tight butthole. Yeah, Com- a comradely com- comradely uh, hail to the solar anus. All right, that's it for this week. Um, dropping this one on MLK Day. Or maybe right before, if I 
get it up tonight. Uh, yeah, hope you have a good MLK day. Hope, hope you got the day off. And I hope you... Hope you spend the holiday with the proper... I hope you observe it with the proper reverence that I think that Dr. King would have wanted. Which means going on the internet and telling people about the real Martin Luther King. Um, yeah. So if you want to get all of us, uh, hit us up on social media. If you want to support the show, you can subscribe to our Patreon. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.